It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. The Athletic. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. the Fulhamish podcast your independent voice of Fulham FC my name's Sammy James welcome to the show brought to you by The Athletic UK and it is the Thursday club and we're going to be looking back at Saturday's horror show up in Coventry and maybe a bit of a wider analysis of exactly what went wrong and also what has gone wrong in the latest month for Fulham it's not been plain sailing at all if August was a breeze then it was very much choppy waters during September and early October Uh, we've also got a bit of a discussion today on Matt O'Reilly following Peter's piece in The Athletic and also we might be looking a bit at Claudio Ranieri who is back in England following that famous very unsuccessful stint at Fulham and as I said it's the Thursday Club today so I'm joined by Jack Collins hello listeners and Fulham writer for The Athletic, chief Fulham writer for The Athletic, Peter Rutzler. <laughs> Hello, Sammy. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. It's been a while since I've given you your full title, so I thought... Um, it's thought very it much appreciated. Thank you very much. <laughs> right, let's get into it, chaps. Coventry on Saturday, an absolute abomination. Um, not what any of us were expecting, I think, when we didn't cruise into halftime 1-0 up. It certainly all seemed quite comfortable and routine. Peter... It, a flick of a switch and that match suddenly was 4-1. Yeah. Um, I, can, yeah I guess it was. Flick, yeah, it was. It was that five-minute spell after half time that just seemed to whack Fulham around the head and they never recovered from their sort of days that resulted from it. I mean, it's set up to be one of those away performances. And I think as you guys described on the, on the Monday podcast, it was set up as one of those sort of get-the-job-done performances. You know, things weren't going particularly well in the first half. It was quite finely balanced. Fulham had a threat. Coventry had their moments as well. And they were do- doing very well getting into wide areas. Um, O'Hare in the middle was causing a few problems, but I felt Harrison Reader sort of got to grips with him by the middle of that half. And then after half time, it was, um, you know, it was as though Fulham had stayed in the dressing room mentally. And it was just, they were out there in, in physical form and they were just blown away. Um, the, the mistake, obviously, for the first goal was important. Uh, and then when you compound that with, um, the, the the penalty as well. Two two very different scenarios. One in very much self inflicted. The other, um, you know, it's <laughs> it was a dive. The FA have now charged Matt Godden. Um, if proven, he could get a two game ban now for diving, which is kind of a weird thing to get a, a, a harsher punishment than what you would have got on the field. But yeah, yeah. Let, let, just let's talk about that. I, I was, look, I was incensed by the dive and I, I said on Sunday's podcast that I felt that like the wider narrative around this game was not centred enough on the dive because it was all lovely Coventry City have got a big win and they did a great comeback and it probably also because it was 4-1 as well and maybe as well there's another reason it glossed over but yeah to see Godden get a two game ban for that in some ways I'm applauding it but I was I was definitely shocked yeah he hasn't got it yet it's obviously got to be proven but 
I mean, it looks like it will. I mean, it was a dive. And I, I do think you're right, Sammy. I do think it was a, a massive part of the game. Obviously, afterwards, um, you could see Marco Silva was was very unhappy with the decision, um, but didn't want to lay the blame on the door of the referee. And to be honest, you, you can't really. Um, for sure, it was a big moment in the game. It, it compounded the first mistake, but I think you have to you have to take the two together. Um, you have to take that mistake, the the Palagatsaniga pass, which is just a poor one. Tim Ream's touch is then poor, and then Josh Onomar. I'm not really sure what he's doing there. I think he's trying to rectify the situation, and it just all looks terrible. Um, and when you when you have two such incidents, then you're going to um, it, it's a problem. And and then the concerning thing is how they responded, and I, you know that for me was still the main takeaway. It's how you respond to those moments, how you deal with that. Um, because there are going to be other moments like that this season. I mean, there's been hardly a game gone by without a major refereeing decision that seems slightly off. Um, and, and you've got to be able to cope with that and, and, and manage through it. And, and Fulham didn't do that. Yeah, Jack, your analysis from Cov at the weekend. What I would love to know is, do you think this is a blip? Do you think this is a one-off and just it was a lot of bad circumstances and a bit of poor tactics, poor management from Silva that, that led to what happened in Coventry. Or is this a slippery slope? I don't want to say it's a slippery slope. I, I think that's uh, that's probably jumping the gun a little bit. I, I think there are some recurring issues that I would like to see fixed quite quickly. We're struggling against the high press with wing backs away from home. Um, we saw it at the second half at Bristol City. Uh, we saw it against Coventry, especially in that second half. When people really put the you know put us under the cosh, especially away from home, we we're, we're really struggling to get out, and we're really struggling to to fight our way out of these situations. And it's hemming us in in a way that I didn't see Fulham being done it, and basically isolates the middle. It means that we have. Just Harrison Reed basically in there trying to play his way out and not being able to find any solutions in possession. Uh, and basically we're, we're getting stuck in our own half and uh, it means that our possession sequences are short. It means that we're not able to hold onto the ball. It means it keeps coming back at us and it puts undue pressure on a defence, which whilst I would say is, is, no, is, is not a bad defence by any stretch of the imagination, is a defence which I think is being coached to want the ball, to possess the, the football and, and, then, and then break out and, and be able to, to dictate games and, and, and really move Fulham outwards. And I think it was quite obvious against Coventry that as soon as you put them under sustained pressure, this defence is a bit like, hang on, we're not used to this. We actually like controlling games. And Fulham had zero control in that second half. I think that's the terrifying thing about the Coventry game. It was the first time this season I've seen Fulham completely lose control of a game. Um, now, it, it happened in fits and starts at Bristol City. We were still the better team in that second half. I thought we created, we opened them up a couple of times. We were unlucky in not to score again one and two to concede a goal that was miles offside. But yeah. against Coventry, we weren't unlucky. You know, yes, you can talk about the decision for the penalty all you like, but ultimately, Fulham had an opportunity there to, to grind out a result. We shot ourselves in the foot with the with the first goal with the equalizer yes we're you know it happens to the penalty and and we can see that it's a dive etc cetera, etc cetera, but you bounce back from that if you're a side with you know a strong core that's able to to deal with these situations fulham capitulated absolutely capitulated and that is going to be a worry for marco silva looking forward because 
suddenly you're going to play, you're going to go to places, especially if Fulham are a scalp, which we are in this division, which we are having Mitrovic, which we are looking at the squad that Fulham have put together. We are a scalp. We're going to be a target for teams and other fans are going to be like, come on, we could beat Fulham. That'd be a massive result for our season. And I'm not playing the Billy Big Bollocks here. That's not what it is. It's about the fact that Fulham are expected to go up top two by pretty much every other side in this division. And so to beat Fulham on your own patch is a massive achievement. And therefore, you look at it and you go, people are going to be up for that. They're going to be game. And we've, we basically capitulated in front of a home crowd that was vociferous, that you know that, that made it a little bit nasty in there. And look, there were plenty of things that I'm sure we're going to talk about and sure were talked about that you know were unsavory and, and quite frankly horrible at what happened at Coventry. But the team on the pitch being able to respond to and, and not respond to, probably more importantly, uh, that kind of environment, that kind of atmosphere and being put under the cosh is a little bit scary. I'm not going to jump the gun and say this is a slippery slope because I think it can be rectified, but I think it needs to be rectified quickly. I mean, that performance is, a, is the most alarming of the season. And it, I'll start with the, the tactical point because it's really interesting because this is, I think you could even throw in Birmingham City into this. And I know yes. the result yeah, was yeah. was 4-1, but both, but all three of the teams Jack mentioned, so uh, Coventry, uh, Bristol City and Birmingham, at some point in their games used a 3-4-1-2. And it literally just goes man for man with with what Fulham are trying to do. It puts someone on the number six, stops them playing out slowly in a pedestrian sort of way. So if you're not on it, if you're not with it, they, you will get pressed very, very quickly. And when you press high, the wingbacks can then push onto Fulham's fullbacks and suddenly it's very difficult to break out unless you go direct. I feel like that's something that Fulham have stopped doing so much. You know, I think in the early couple of games, I'm sure we've remarked a few times about, oh, they're just, you know, they want to get forward quickly, turn the other team around. And that seems to be a, a simple way to do that. But at the moment, it looks like Fulham have one set way of playing and they can't really adapt. From the way Silver talks and how he talks about his idea and his model, he has a very, very set formation. He has a very set style and that's how Fulham are going to play. He, doesn't, he will tweak it compared to who they're up against. They'll try and find the spaces, exploit certain areas. But from the, out, from the, from the get-go, there is a 4-3-3 three, three there. There is a number six, normally one. And then the only real change is whether it's a 10 or an 8 and, and how advanced those midfielders sort of go. So that makes you almost predictable, or at least you can plan in advance. You can, you can do what Coventry, did, Coventry City did. You can do what Bristol City then adapted to and actually set, set up to, to counteract them. Football's not one of those games where you go, this setup will naturally counterattack this one. It's not like that. But if you're not playing at tempo, if you're not on it, if you're not able to to recycle the ball quickly. I mean, the, some of the passes, even in the first half, were, were, were appalling between the midfield three. And when you're not on that and, and the team can press high, they can take, they can take the ball off you and, and they can exploit you and they can pin you back. And as Jack said, Fulham lacked control in that game. Now, that's just one side of it. And then, of course, there's the, the reaction too, uh, where you have a team that has got to get used to that kind of pressure. Jack's absolutely right. It's the Fulham Ira scout. I know... I know we can dispute the actual mechanics of the finances that Fulham have spent and you know how much they're spending this year or how much they're going to It's irrelevant. The narrative is very clear. Fulham have committed to spending around 20 million. Now, Silver's disputed that, whatever. Either way, it's far more than anyone else in the division. Yeah. You know, they're a Premier League team, maximum parachute payments, an incredibly strong squad. You're going to be a scout. You're going to have to cope with that. Teams are going to come up against you and say, right, this, this is our big game. This is our one game where we think, ah, oh, we're, we're underdogs here. And it was a great atmosphere, to be fair, at, at the ground. And 
And it just felt like Fulham just fell apart under it. You know, the, the weather was crap. It wasn't playing the way they wanted to. It wasn't nice. The football wasn't tidy, pushed high and, and punished Fulham. Um, and Jack, you wanted to mention one Coventry player in particular who did give us the runaround, I felt like, on Saturday, which was, was Callum O'Hare. He was a bit ineffective in the first half, but second half came into his own. Tied little player. Yeah, really, really good player. Um, and he's interesting. We spoke about him on ranks this week. I had Ali Maxwell on and we were talking about players that potentially have the ability to play in the Premier League, if not next season, then definitely the season after. And Callum O'Hare's name came up. He's a pressing machine in that 10. And I think it goes back to all what we were saying. You know, this formation isn't, Fulham's kryptonite. I mean, there's plenty of teams that can play a 3-4-1-2 and Fulham will be able to play around them with their eyes closed, right? One, Fulham looked like they were running in mud, um, which is which is not a particularly pretty thing to watch. We just looked like we were very, very sluggish through the whole game. And two, O'Hare basically sat on firstly Harrison Reed and then John McElserry when he came on and hassled and hassled and hassled and hassled. And that in itself took Fulham by surprise. We've seen Seri play his way out of some pressing this year, but I would say pressing that was three-quarter hearted at most, right? It's it's one of those things where you look at it and go, okay, John McElserry is able to do this flick. He's not able to do that if Callum O'Hare is breathing down his neck before he even gets the ball. And I yeah. thought that was a massive part of why Fulham weren't able to get out because our six is so important in terms of how Fulham play, the metronomic ability of, of John McElserry. Obviously, he was missing from the start of this game, but you can you can understand that Fulham have other players that can play this role. I do appreciate that while Serri is unbelievable and has been all season, we have to be able to rotate. He's gonna. It's a long season. We know his legs have given out before. We know he's playing international football again for the Ivory Coast. Um, so he's not going to be able to play every single game. But, you know, we, we do need to think about who goes into that role, especially in games where they're going to be under pressure from moment one. If you've watched any of Mark Robbins' commentary from this season or before, you'll know that that's what Callum O'Hare does. You know, they're basically is the only position he can play as a 10. He only, he, that's all he can do. He never plays wide. He never plays up front. He always plays the one, the three, four, one, two, or they don't play him. And so yeah. you can look at that team and go, you've got to be ready for that. And Fulham just didn't feel ready for that. And that worries me a little bit. Part of me does think though, Peter, that as much as I think there is real things to address here and it did seem like Fulham came unstuck against the Coventry system and just the way that they pressed and a, a, a kind of fervent home crowd that we will get a little bit of normal service resumed in the next few games. I know that they're getting much, much tougher, the matches, but there has to be an element of, I felt that there, there did seem a bit of one-offness to this, that it was a unique set of circumstances. It all absolutely capitulated in front of us in circumstances that I don't think would happen 10 times out of 10 in that game against Coventry. It all did go a bit wrong. I think there's things to go like, okay, this Fulham side is not infallible. And there was a bit of a blueprint from Coventry there. There aren't going to be many teams in this league who are going to be able to replicate what Coventry did. I think, I think you're right uh, in terms of how that second half sort of unfolded. It was pretty unique that start I don't think Fulham are going to get a five minute spell like that again we'll we'll have to see um what was perhaps I guess less unique but still what is concerning is just the reaction because that's going to happen again almost certainly going to happen again um there will be moments where the pressure will will increase there'll be games where Fulham are pressing to try and find the winner when the game is tied um 
we think back to the Bristol City game where Fulham reacted quite well. Um, they were able to create opportunities. Um, Kibana missed a good chance. Mitrovic, obviously, in, in stoppage time. So that was almost encouraging. However, they lacked composure. They lacked a calmness, is what Silva described it, to, to actually stick the ball in the net. Now, that's not too dissimilar to what happened in, against Coventry in the second half. When things were going wrong, there was a distinct lack of composure uh, in the team. You know, they created nothing. They didn't test Simon Moore. Um, that was deeply concerning. So, uh, for sure, I think you're right in terms of how the second half unfolded. And I don't see that necessarily happening every week. Yeah. But without doubt, in terms of how they respond to the reaction, uh, how they respond to adversity, um, that's, that's definitely going to happen. That's going to happen all season long. And then that, that's why it was probably the first game where you've gone, hold on a minute, this is not good. This is, this is something that we need to really keep an eye on because if it happens, it, keep, it keeps happening. Fulham won't get into the top two places. It's simple as that. Now, obviously, the championship is a wide open division. The results are crazy. Um, it's, Fulham is still, what, two points off the automatics? So mm. we, can't be, we can't be going, this is a crisis. And even the underlying metrics are still really good. You know, like we can't, you can't disguise the fact that mo- most games Fulham have been really very impressive. They do play some good football. You know, they score a lot of goals. They create a lot of chances. Um, I'm looking at the stats of running in our highest expected goals among the, the fewest expected goals against some of the most shots in the league, the most shots in the league. Um, some uh, four fewest shots conceded. I mean, when the, the story's still okay. But I think after this period, after this international break period between September and, and October, you know, it sort of reset expectations and also laid out some clear markers that have to be kept an eye on because those qualities, those, I guess, mental qualities really um, can be decisive in, uh, when you're chasing automatics. I guess, Jack, one result that Fulham haven't really had, and West Brom have definitely had it, and Bournemouth have had it a little bit, but not quite so much, is a result where we've dug out a win. All our wins, I feel like this season, have been kind of achieved in third gear. You think back to the run in August and, you know, the win at Birmingham was was a fairly comfortable one. There hasn't been a game this year and there was obviously opportunities against Reading, Bristol City and well, particularly against Coventry, not that we even got close, where Fulham actually were put under adversity and should have been able to find a way to get three points. And you look at a couple of West Brom's wins this year, the one at Peterborough, nil-nil going into the 90th minute, bagged a 94th minute winner. You look at their win away at Blackburn, where Blackburn made it 2-1 at the beginning of the second half after West Brom were 2-0 up at halftime. They held on, still managed to get the three points. And I think that's maybe what Fulham need in the next two or three games and look we've got games where we probably will have to do that kind of win is we need a win where actually it's not necessarily look if we win every game 3-0 I'm not going to be here complaining but also (laughs) I think we need to get a result kind of not out of nothing but we need to get one out of adversity a bit I mean I suppose we dug out the win against Millwall in the end um (sighs) it shouldn't have had we shouldn't have had to but we did um, I yeah, I, I get what you mean. There was a five minute spell, maybe, but it's not exactly like and it we was. It wasn't particularly, co- you know, it wasn't particularly cohesive either. Right. There, there's that element of it. I, I, I get what you're saying. Um, look, I, I do think that there are going to be games, especially if Fulham hit gear, you know, or hit top gear, should I say, um, you know, <laughs> it's a very different thing. <laughs> Um, if we hit top gear, 
are uh, going to... Well, they're going to have an element where we can tear through teams and score a couple of goals in a couple of minutes, right? It's what we saw at Swansea at home. It's what we saw at Huddersfield away. You know, we, we are able to just absolutely blitz teams when things start to click for us. And actually, that's not a bad thing to have in the tank. You know, when you score one, you often score a couple. And and as things go, I think it's a, you know, a pretty standard way of looking at how Fulham are going to play this season. Yes, I appreciate what you're saying in terms of, you know, we need to dig a few out. But ultimately, I do think there's enough quality in this side that... When you get when we get there, we're gonna we're gonna be fine. And, and once this international break comes through, perhaps it's just like that bit between the breaks, right? Between the breaks is terrible and a bit scary. And then we come out the other side of this international break, and things are just exactly as they were beforehand. Um, so we shall see. But I, I I'd like to see here. I think for me the the big thing is that Silver learns the lessons of the you know the first international break that we get to go and see you know a bit of a a bit of a time here where the squad get together and just reset their heads. We we don't see mass changes coming out of the other side of the international break, but we do see enough changes just to freshen the players up who haven't been away. Um, the, the weird bit on that, I suppose, is a lot of calls for Marek Rodak to come back in, which I think are completely fair enough. He's obviously away for the international break while Gazaniga's here. Um, that, that's not great for him, I'd imagine, in terms of actually trying to secure a spot within the side um, pushing forward. So there's that element to consider. But on the whole, you know, the, the talk is that Kenny Tete might be back after the international break. The talk is that Fabio Carvalho might be back after the international break. We might see Marco Silva's full team restored to him. Um, and, and in that case, I think things will get slightly easier. Yeah, um, Peter, there has been um, talks of, of Tete and Carvalho after the international break. You don't know for certain. Do you feel fairly confident that one, if not both, might be back in that side for the Rangers game? Um, I, I'd be more confident that Fabio would be involved after the international break. I'd be surprised if he's not at this point. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think um, Silver in his press conference said that Kenny Tete could be available after the international break. That I imagine he'll probably need a little bit more time. Um, just to get up to speed, but you know, both of them are pretty close. So, and and as Jack says, having both having one or both is is a big boost. And obviously, throughout this period, we uh, Fulham have, have I've missed them. Um, Fabio Carvalho yeah. probably in particular, and it's probably his is is off ball work as much as what he does with it that's been missed. And Peter, one disappointing thing that followed up after the game, uh, you wrote about this in the Athletics News section, uh, police investigating after a Fulham fan reported racist abuse at Coventry. Uh, There's only so much that we can say because it's uh, an open investigation, but if true, uh, a a really horrible uh, footnote to the the afternoon. Yes, certainly really disappointing uh, if if true. And, and, you know, as as I understand it, you know, it, it was reported at, in the ground and, and the police are investigating Coventry have been helping. So um, we'll, we'll see what develops from that. It's a, it's a shame because the day itself was quite a nice one. Obviously it was Jimmy Hill day. Um, obviously the fans met by, uh, by the statue up the front and it was absolutely pouring with rain. Um, still came out, still, still wrapped a couple of flags around, around the, around the statue. And um, it was, it was a real shame to be honest that the, the second half performance played the way it did because uh, it would have been quite nice to sort of frame the frame, frame the, the match story around it, shall we say. Um, but uh, unfortunately, it didn't, didn't pan out that way. But yes. And on a, on a similar tangent, um, just a little bit of a show of solidarity for our friend Russ Goldman over at Cottage Talk. Uh, I noticed that there were a, a section of Coventry fans who 
were giving him some pretty nasty abuse on his YouTube review of the Fulham Coventry game, pretty much just for being American. Um, and and I, I just thought it was particularly out of order, given that everything that Russ has done, um, been doing cottage talk for, for 10 years, he really very much is the, uh, the OG when it comes to Fulham podcasting and Fulham broadcasting and, you know, never nice to, to be on the receiving end of, of that kind of abuse. So uh, just all I love Russ. Cause yeah, big uh, love Russ. yeah, all us Fulham fans know how much you care uh, about, about this club uh, and football in general. So uh, if you're listening, Russ, then uh, yeah, stay strong and, uh, and keep going with the great work. All right, we're going to take a break and afterwards we're going to discuss Matt O'Reilly. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast. Sammy James here with Jack Collins. Hello, listeners. And Peter Rutzler. Hey, everybody. Peter, uh, a piece out in The Athletic this week that you released on Tuesday, uh, an interview with a certain Matt O'Reilly, which I know will pique the interest of Jack Collins, who was very much banging the Matt O'Reilly drum for several years. Uh, and the interesting story about how he turned down a, a contract offer with Fulham to go as a free agent and in the end has has joined MK Dons, uh, joined them initially under Russell Martin and is really thriving in their system in League One. It was a brave move from Matt O'Reilly to go, to go without a contract, but it seems to have worked out brilliantly for him in, for him in the end. Couldn't help read this with a tinge of what could have been. Yes. Yeah, no, I was actually something I put to him at the end of the, the interview and um, maybe, maybe in different circumstances, Matt O'Reilly would have pushed into the first team at Fulham. Um, but you know, as he said, it's, it's ifs and buts. But um, it was he was a player once I started covering the club that immediately came up in in comments and questions about what had happened to him because obviously he went without a club for six months. Um, you know, essentially he said he was he was training in the park for a bit. Um, once, once it was decided that he wasn't going to extend his contract, you know, for that extra month into into lockdown, Scott Parker called him and said, "Look, I, I don't want you around in, in the setup." Um, I think the same thing happened to Luca Della Torre, who we spoke to last year as well, um, which Matt accepted, and and then and then it went from there. Really, he had a I think he had a trial with a Belgian club in December, but it was Russell Martin that had shown that interest in, and and taken him into the fold. Um, but a really really interesting conversation actually, and a really relevant one. It brings up a lot of topics about the academy pathway. Um, of course, for, for O'Reilly, in the time in which he was breaking into that first team, Fulham were getting promoted to the Premier League in 2018-19, then went straight back down, had what, multiple changes in management, um, which is just not the ideal situation for a young player. I remember when we were talking at the end of last season about potentially Scott Parker going and what that might mean for the young players, because it means you have to prove yourself again. Now, it's Unfortunate that Marcus Hill has come in and has really, really taken to some of these academy players and, and brought them into the setup. And obviously, not being in a pandemic has helped. Um, but you know, it's it, it makes it very challenging. And and to be honest, and, and when you read what uh, what he was saying and, and listening to him at the time, he's a confident kid. And 
it was evident that, you know, fair play to him, to be honest. You know, he wanted to go and get game time. He wanted to make sure he was playing because he'd been around that first team setup since he was about 16. And and he's gone out and he's done that. And as you say, Sammy, he's he started really well at MK Dons, played every league game, played in every league game. Uh, and I think he was their player of the month for August, the club's player of the month for August. And, and he's among the, the highest performing midfielders in the division now. So I don't think it'll be long before he's, he's stepping back up a level. Jack, um, have you got a little bit of a case of hate to say I told you so? Uh, a little bit, but I mean, look, ultimately he's made that decision himself, right? It's not, a, it's not a decision that I don't think anybody made for him. And it's a strange one, isn't there? There's always that element of, there's always those questions over why Matt O'Reilly left and why he was excluded and why he didn't play more. Um, and, and there's always going to be those questions at Fulham. And I mean, I know that uh, certain members of the Twitter brigade will tell you that he had the wrong agent uh, and therefore wasn't able to play for Fulham. Um, I think if I'm not mistaken, he's part of the same agency that has Joe Bryan, Josh Onimer, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I'm not quite sure it's that. Um, but there, there is a, a question mark over, you know, the, not signing that contract and, and not doing it. While I appreciate the, the first team football point, and I think he's spot on in order to go and kick on and move into that there's always that question of was his mind kind of taken by those articles that said oh Dortmund are after Matt O'Reilly you know do you remember all of this the whole thing that he was linked to Dortmund if I'm not mistaken a couple of Serie A teams as well um interested in in potentially signing him and then he became a free agent and nothing of these popped up and there was a little bit of chat that had he been swindled in some way to think that there was more interest in him than there actually was from abroad um so i'm really i'm really glad ultimately i loved watching him in for the youth teams i thought he was a phenomenal player i thought he was a real talent um and i loved watching him for the youth teams and therefore i'm delighted for him to be perfectly honest with you to go away and and make your mark at, at mk dons and i know he'll be under dean lewington there and who's a who's a good guy by all accounts um and and seems to be it seems to be a good place for players to come through and 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 work and look he's worn the armband on a couple of occasions i think if i'm not mistaken uh, mk dons which is pretty impressive for a kid of his age uh, to be coming through and and doing that in a team of well some seasoned professionals in that side so yeah, I mean, look, yes, there is an element of I wish he was playing for Fulham because I think he's good enough. And again, he's another one we talked about with Ali this week as the, he was Ali's League One long shot that he thinks he's potential Premier League quality. So there is a, a player there that we all think that, you know, that he's able to deal with the physicality, the kind of mix it um, ability in a fit league as physical as League One. He's got none, no problems mixing it with them in that division. He's got two goals, two assists in seven appearances this season, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and and therefore you're looking at this and going, right, this is this is a very very impressive player at that level. And at 20 years old to be running games in League One, you don't think it's going to be long before he makes a step up at least one division if not two. Um, and, and I would be very surprised if we didn't see Matt O'Reilly playing in the Premier League um, at some point in the future. But Peter, I think the bit that was most interesting for me was his point about nationality. Yes, yeah, he's got... Uh, he was actually born in Singapore as well. Uh, I did ask if he was eligible for Singapore, but I don't think they'd be on his on his radar. Do you moment. know if he's got any Irish grandparents? Because we could really do with him. Uh, he didn't mention... <laughs> he, didn't, he does uh, sound like he should. He, he should didn't do. mention that. Um, <laughs> But no, he's, he's, he's eligible for Denmark through, through his mother, Gita, uh, and Norway through his, uh, his mum's father, so his grandfather. 
Um, but of, of those countries, it, I think the decision will be between England and, and Denmark. Obviously, he's played at youth level for, for England. Um, he says he feels Danish. Um, so he speaks a bit of Danish, not his family in Denmark. So that that'll be interesting to see. He said he celebrated both goals in the Euros, which, you know, is I think that's a bit questionable, but anybody would play Denmark. But um but no, yeah, so that that's one decision. And I think Jack's right in terms of where he could go. I mean, Blackpool came in from in the summer. So already there there are clubs looking at him to take him back to to, to the level Fulham are at now. So, you know, it's um it's an interesting one. I thought it was also quite interesting how we talked about not just the players that were in his way because of um, signings that had come in, but but also how he played as a six and he didn't really want to be a six. Mm. And he felt that his game was a bit more rounded than that. Um, he's actually playing quite a little bit deeper at the moment with MK Dons, yeah, but with yeah. that with that license to get forward too, which which he really liked. So um, yeah, it'd be definitely one we'll, we'll all be keeping an eye on, I'm sure. And um, even even from a Fulham perspective, you know the, the academy still benefits when these players do well. It comes back comes back in their ratings financially. There's an element to it. So um, to see him do well is, is a good thing for Fulham as much as you would like to see him in the first team. I just can't wait to watch Denmark with a midfield pivot of Thomas Delaney and Matty O'Reilly. Like, <laughs> are you are you sure, lads? Like, is everybody feeling all right? <laughs> I, I you say it's good for Fulham, Peter, and I can understand that there will be small benefits, but. It's it's not the same as we've lit. If if he does make it to the Premier League, then Fulham will have effectively just watched another Premier League quality youth player kind of walk out the door for nothing. And I just feel like we're massive victims of the volatility of Fulham's league position. If Fulham were even solid Championship or solid Premier League, some of these players may not have gone under the radar. You you've seen that article where Matt O'Reilly says. He's thinking, okay, it's the it's the summer of 2019. Maybe this is my shot to get into the first team. And he talks about how then Fulham signed Harrison Reed and Harry Arter in his position. And he's going, well, they've got 200 Premier League appearances between them under, under their belt. They're like, I'm not getting into that team. And and whilst I can maybe understand the, the signing of Harrison Reed in hindsight because he's absolutely mustered, the signing of Harry Arter, that is one of those signings that you must come in and go. Oh, he, he was all right for us. He did a bit of a job. He scored a couple of great goals. But if you could ask me, in hindsight, would have I rather seen 20 appearances from Matt O'Reilly that season or the 20 appearances from, from Harry Arter? It's kind of a no-brainer. And, and I guess it's it's the academy falling victim of the short-termism that is kind of required for Fulham to, to get back to the Premier League, which is the number one above all else aim. Yeah, no, there's no, there's no denying that. That's that's fundamentally why you will get Matt O'Reilly leaving and, and other young players thinking and assessing what the pathway is like. Um, it, it comes into the same thing in terms of changing managers too. I mean, it all all plays a part in the thinking of a young player. And and you're right, Sammy. If there was more stability, there's I don't think there's any sort of debate around that. Um, there's a, even even this season, you know, Marco Silva's pushing for promotion. It's a massively important job for him. He's a new manager. Sure, Fabio Cavalli has done well, but he he seems to be a talent above above and beyond. And it feels like you've got to be that level. You've got to be sort of Ryan Sessegnon level to to actually get in and get those get those opportunities. Um, and I, and, as you, and I guess it comes down to what you sort of what, what what the club want to do really. And and I can understand why there there are then questions of well, what's what's the point when you know you bring in those players, but. It, Again, which is why I mentioned about, you know, there are some 
good benefits of him doing well in the same way that whenever a young player comes through the academy and is in the football league, that reflects well on the club. But at the same time, the purpose of the academy is, you know, outwardly, it's actually to produce Premier League and Champions League quality players. That's that's their sort of remit. Um, but for from a Fulham perspective, you know, there's nothing better than seeing a, a young player in the, in the first team. And if those those pathways are blocked by new arrivals, it, it makes it difficult. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, if you want to read Peter's article and interview with Matt O'Reilly, and, and I suggest it's well worth your time, uh, you can get 33% off uh, a new subscription to The Athletic by going to theathletic.com forward slash Fulham pod. Right, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to discuss our favourite Fulham Italian manager. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Part three of the Fulhamish podcast, Sammy James here with Jack Collins and Peter Rutzler. Uh, Jack, you wanted to dispute my claim just before the break. Yeah, not my favourite Fulham Italian manager. Can, He's not Vincenzo, mine either. Does Vincenzo Mantello not count? Like, obviously he didn't manage Fulham, but he is an Italian manager who also played for Fulham. But I feel like that should count. Maybe. I mean, I'd obviously wouldn't rather have Vincenzo Montella managing Fulham than Claudio Ranieri any day. So yes, I guess it counts. I mean, having it. Claudio is my favourite and my least favourite because he's the only one. But he is back in the Premier League, Jack. Yes, he is. He's at Watford. He's taken over from Zisco, who was fired by the Pozzos after, well, six, seven games um, of this Premier League season. So, I mean, look, it's it's a lot of people will look at this and go, Watford doing what Watford do, right? But you'll look at the majority of the Watford fan base and they're pretty happy with it. So I don't think they're all that happy with Ranieri coming in as his replacement, but I think they all basically wanted a change. So, I mean, look, who are we to argue? If Watford fans wanted a change of management, then we should let them have a change of management. Um, Peter, if people are interested as to why Watford have gone for Ranieri, there's a piece um, from Adam Leventhal on The Athletic, which I know that you contributed towards from a from a Fulham perspective. Given that his time with us was so disastrous, it does feel like an odd move. I, I guess he still has some credibility in the bank from what he did at Leicester City, though. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess it carries carries a long way. I guess it, it depends on the circumstances, I suppose. It it's different. I I think as it was put in the piece, it's not it's kind of difficult to fully assess him at Fulham <laughs> in the sense that you, you can't make a full sort of general picture of, of what his management style is because of the situation he sort of inherited with the squad that was massive, you know, the massive turnover the squad had had, the massive change from Jukanovic to a Ranieri style of play. Uh, it was always going to be a bit of a challenge. Um, never really seemed to warm to the squad, I think was the concerning factor. And I think when he has that public face of being, you know, a very nice and a nice person and a very uh, amiable character, you can, you can lift a team, that that probably will be Watford's concerning point. But, you know, different different set of players. So, I mean, if you base it on his 106-day spell at Fulham, I, I wouldn't have the loftiest expectations, but we'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And I think that, that when you look at what he had at Fulham and, and the squad he inherited from Slavisa Jukanovic, Yeranieri was a, well, I, I think I think given the last few years of his kind of management style, Leicester onwards, he's a reactive counter-attacking manager, right? That's what we've seen him do in those things. Obviously, it was a little bit different when he was at Chelsea early on and whatever, but but over the last couple of years, we've seen him really in a, in a reactive side who don't want possession, who want to counter, you know, whether that quick or slow, mostly quick. Uh, and we've seen what that can do for him. And we saw it at Leicester. Um, it didn't necessarily work for him in France. Um, it worked a little bit better at Sampdoria, where he was able to, to make it kind of work. And it was an absolute disaster at Fulham. That said... He basically tried to put a side who loved having the ball under Jukanovic and wanted to play free-flowing, expressive attacking football uh, into a 5-4-1 with Alexander Mitrovic up top and somehow thought this was going to get goals. Um, it didn't, funny enough. And it basically, uh, there, was a, there was a few questions saying, surely a great manager should be able to adapt to the, the side he has in front of him and deal with it. And I agree. I, I think a great manager does. I don't think that... He's a great manager, personally. I think he's a good manager um, and he's obviously won the most iconic Premier League victory, I think, in, in probably in history, probably ever. Um, but on the whole, I think he's a manager who will be able to get his sides to uh, a tune out of his sides if they are built in the right mould. Now, I think that Watford, with Ismail Saar and his pace on the counter, with the amount of centre-backs they have in there and the fact that he's probably going to use Craig Cathcart again, um, it means that this is a better fit for Ranieri stylistically than what Fulham was. Um, and I think that's important to remember that, do I think he's going to keep them up? Probably not, no. But do I think he's going to do a better job with this Watford side than he did with Fulham? Yes, because the side is built much more to his taste than I think that Fulham were. And Fulham fans as well, bear in mind, wanted to see that expressive attacking free-flowing football under the academy because it was fun. We loved it. It was really enjoyable. I don't think Watford fans will have the same um, desire to watch a certain stylistic type of football because that it has been so chop and change over these years. Um, and there is that factor that managers kind of come and go. I think that Ranieri will have a better time at Watford than he did at Fulham. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much for listening to the podcast today. We will have a podcast for you uh, early next week, uh, hopefully Sunday or Monday. Uh, talking about the Craven Cottage atmosphere, we're going to have Tom Greatrix from the Fulham Supporters Trust, Don Betts from the H5 crew, uh, and also we're going to be speaking to a Norwich fan who has been instrumental in improving the atmosphere at Carrow Road uh, with uh, the Along Come Norwich initiative. Um, so it'd be great to hear from him as well. 
well. Uh, we're going to be getting into some of your questions that you've been uh, sending in via Twitter about the atmosphere as well. So hopefully uh, it should be a really, really interesting podcast that will be out early next week. But us three will return uh, at the same time next week, previewing that big QPR game, uh, reacting to the latest Fulham news and probably reviewing some of the international performances uh, from various Fulham squad members who will be playing for their nations this weekend. Uh, last thing to do is to thank my guest, Jack Collins. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sammy. And Peter Rutzler, thank you. Thank you, Sammy. All right. Take it easy, everyone. Have a good weekend. Without Fulham spoiling, come on, you whites. You whites. Yeah.